is A Disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm still not here with my co-host, Lee. I'm Lee. I'm still not here with my co-host, Peter. Hopefully that's going to change soon, because I think earlier today, you dropped some stuff off at the studio where we normally record, and you had a sneak peek at what's been going on in there. I had a sneak peek at the um, changes in the studio. It's more podcast friendly, I would say, and pretty excited. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I'm uh, excited for you guys to see our new, well, <laughs> you've never seen our old setup, so. No, yeah. Although I think by the by now, I think I've released a video tour on Patreon of oh. the, the space. Yeah. One of the so. perks, one of the many perks of becoming a patron. Yeah, well, we'll talk about how you can do that in a second. You're joining us for a Tragedy Tuesday, our mini episodes about disasters that usually don't end up being so many. And today's is, oh boy. Okay. (laughs) But we'll get there. Nice. If you're new here, welcome. Happy to have you. If you're wondering what the best thing you can do, well, maybe maybe the place to start, I would say, is all the way back at the beginning, because we'll do some callbacks, especially today, to a couple episodes in particular. But in general, we sort of Try to maintain a thread throughout the episodes where we reference stuff that we've talked about before. You're not going to miss any inside jokes, but if you want to know exactly what's going on at all times, start at the beginning. That's right. If you listen to all that and you like it, the best thing you can do to help us out is to tell a friend to listen. So when this comes out, there's still another couple weeks to go in our draw for some super exclusive one-of-a-kind merch. So the way you qualify for that is you tweet or you Instagram post or you talk on Facebook about our podcast and you tag us at This Disaster Pod on all the social medias and you'll get entered into a draw for some super exclusive merch. It'll probably be a shirt in an exclusive color and maybe the print itself will also be a special color and there's some other stuff that we're cooking up, some some neat stuff that if cool. you're paying, paying attention to our social media, you might have seen some some hints at. But anyway... You'll get like a nice little mystery box care package from us as a reward. So that goes until August 31st. We'll do the draw in early September and then we'll mail out your stuff. Yeah. So so do that. If you want to get everything in one convenient place, www.thisdisasterpod.com. And we do have that patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod that Lee was talking about where you can get a bunch of bonus content, micro disasters that come out every two weeks. And then we got some other bigger bonus content. You get access to live streams when we record major disasters. You can go to our Discord anytime, but as a patron, you get your own exclusive content on there too. So check it out. Patreon.com slash this disaster pod. All right, cool. On to the disaster. All right. It turns out that people have been irradiating themselves for over a century. Oh, I don't know if you knew that. Never really thought about it. Well, it's true. In 1901, Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen won the first Nobel Prize awarded for physics for detecting a new type of electromagnetic radiation known as X-rays in 1895. Uh-huh. Apparently, he was doing ex- his experiments on this new type of radiation in no particular secrecy until one day he got a glimpse of his own skeleton, at which point he decided to lock <laughs> his lab doors pretty fast. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. You know funny. what? <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Not like X-rays weren't even close to being a thing. And I I mean, x-rays, both like literally the concept of the x-ray, but also like the thing that you get at a hospital. Like nobody's ever done that. And then Rentgen's in his lab doing a bunch of research. And then one day just like accidentally sees the skeleton, like like bones in his fingers. (laughs) And he's like, I should keep this under wraps. Yeah. (laughs) Who's playing the Halloween prank? (laughs) Come on, That or like, did I open a portal to (laughs) hell? Like, what did I unleash? My soul. (laughs) <laughs> so the name Rentgen might sound familiar. Uh, makes me think of our Chernobyl episodes. Yep. Episode 20 and 21. We talked about him quite a bit. Yeah. 
Because there's a measure of radioactivity named after him called the Rentgen. Right. It's a unit of exposure to ionizing radiation, like X-rays and gamma rays. <laughs> we also heard from Nuclear Norm that that is now obsolete. Right. Although I think his exact words were that it's a garbage measure and I should feel bad for even mentioning it. That sounds like something Norm would say. Yeah, that, that sounds a bit more like Norm. Yeah. Not like, it's actually not that. No, he called it a garbage <laughs> measure for garbage people. Yeah, that's our Norm. So a few people followed in Rentgen's footsteps, including Henri Becquerel, I think, who Nuclear Norm also talked about. Mm. And Becquerel discovered that uranium admits x-rays. And also, Mary Curie followed in Rentkin's foot, footsteps. Okay, sure. To be fair, she deserves a whole lot more time spent on her achievements than what I'm going to do here. But I'm going to focus on one in particular. Mm -hmm. She obviously discovered a bunch of elements on the periodic table and did a lot of research on radiation. Right. Selfless research, you, should, you, could, you could call it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And I feel like even just doing that is not doing it justice. But anyway, the point is, I'm going to focus on, for, for our purposes, Marie Curie is important as a stepping stone or stepping off point for people intentionally exposing themselves to radiation. Mm. In the second decade of the 1900s, Curie was distracted from her scientific research to lend her knowledge of x-rays to the Great War, which would subsequently be retconned as World War I. Okay. <laughs> and I, I think we talked about this a little bit in the Chernobyl episode, but during the First World War, Marie Curie established mobile radiology units Right. So she realized that wounded soldiers are best treated if you know the extent of the injuries. Mm. And at this point in history, we're just barely past the age of, yeah, just saw it off. Here's a wallet. Bite down. <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> she oversaw the implementation of over a dozen mobile radiology units. Okay. And hundreds of field stations dedicated to x-rays of wounded soldiers. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. After the first, or I guess maybe during the First World War, she became the director of the Red Cross's radiology service. Okay. We talked a little bit about the Red Cross and its involvement in World War One in our Johnstown flood episode. That's right. Episode 31. The use of radiation for medical applications goes back further than Curie's radiology units of World War One. Okay. So maybe the first documented use of radiation in medicine was by the French doctor Victor Depeigne. Mm. Of bread. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. It's spelt differently probably uh, i'm not gonna spell it out it's not spelled it's not of the bread. bread so he treated a patient with stomach cancer by aiming a beam of x-rays at the tumor in the 1890s huh which is pretty early on it's pretty i didn't realize prescient. it went that yeah. far back okay so the tumor shrank and the patient felt better but ultimately died of cancer well like i'm not sure if it was the stomach cancer or the cancers caused by 1890s <laughs> x-ray machines blasting uh <laughs> stomach yeah. with x-rays <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah. May maybe i would trust today's technology to do that yeah but 1890s was a long time kind ago. of a good news <laughs> bad news situation <laughs> yeah. the tumor shrunk but there are many more in there throughout your body sorry about that <sighs> the tumor that you came in about yeah that one's gone that's been basically obliterated you are however now <laughs> riddled with tumors yeah. around where that one was <laughs> we didn't realize that would be a byproduct of the treatment <laughs> worse than the ailment here's your bill for a little while, doctors set aside treating cancer with x-rays to focus on skin-based diseases like lupus, which basically forms skin lesions typically around your face right. and other skin-based malignancies. That, uh, so those are typically the targets. So I guess still kind of cancers, but more surface-based ones, mm -hmm. which is probably a wise choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before long, everyone was zapping everything with x-rays, <sighs> which is actually interesting from a history of medicine perspective, I, I suppose, because it kind of shows how far but also how not far we've come from the days of the Black Death in the 14th century. 
If you remember episode 13, 14, we did a pair of episodes on the Black Death, but we talked about how medicine at that time was based mostly on like ancient Greek teachings that had been passed down and hadn't really evolved much. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there was this push for more uniformity and towards a more sort of modern looking medical profession. Mm. And it's funny because, so that was the 14 or the, yeah, the the 1300s going into the 1400s. You fast forward 500 years, we're sophisticated enough to harness the powers of radiation, but not so sophisticated that we don't just like point it at our faces and hope for the best. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's baby steps. Yeah, it's... It's just funny. I talk about that a little later on too, but it's fun to think about. And it's come up a few times on the podcast, just how medicine has evolved. From episode one, we talked about ancient Greek medicine. Right. Throughout history, we do the best with what we know, but a lot of it is just like, uh, is this going to work? Yeah. Just <laughs> throwing stuff at the wall. Well, I have, yeah. I mean, it's a little off topic, but I can, I mm-hmm. can give one sort of personal anecdote on that. Cause I've mentioned before, I, I, I work in a hospital, mm-hmm. uh, on the loading dock. So I'm seeing the equipment and whatnot come through. And occasionally yep. a person will walk through with a tank of leeches. Okay. And apparently that's still used in 21st century medicine. Hmm. Is that like cleaning wounds? Yeah. That's cool. I didn't realize that, but yeah, apparently it's a surefire way to clean a wound. Huh. It's just well, I weird. Guess <laughs> if it ain't if it ain't broke. Right. But that's sort of the what you hear about sort of medieval medicine. Like, yeah. Mm, how many leeches should I put? Yeah, you know, right. Don't and bloodletting and stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's all grasping at straws. And yeah, the leech thing. I bet that's just because, you know, that's at some point someone tried that and it worked and we haven't found anything better. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) and that ties into the whole big picture, like scientific process. You believe something until something else comes along and disproves you. And then you believe that new thing. Until then. Leeches. Leech Leech it. it. (laughs) As is seemingly always the case, someone looked at the state of things and thought, Okay, not that, but there's something <laughs> there probably. Yes. Before like coming back to like pointing radiation at everything. Mm-hmm. In 1896, Niels Finson published a paper where he showed the therapeutic effects of focused light on diseases like lupus. So specifically, he was using the beneficial effects of UV light on healing lupus-induced skin lesions. Okay. So much so that he won a Nobel, Nobel Prize for it in the early 1900s. Hey. The field of pointing x-rays at and radiation at yourself on purpose began to flourish. Okay. But even though he branched off, Finson branched off and started using UV rays, other types of radiation therapy hardly went away. Mm. So x-rays remained a la mode for treating unwanted hair. So basically like laser hair removal, but with radiation. Right. Diseased or infected hair follicles. Oh, okay. Acne and other skin conditions and things like lupus and skin cancer. Okay. So I would say like one out of those four is maybe a worthy cause. Otherwise, (laughs) just... Just pluck it. Just pluck it, <laughs> live with it, and, you know, yeah. deal with it. <laughs> These were generally effective treatments, at least in the short term. People didn't stop at the x-rays, though, when it comes to nuking themselves. And there's a disaster in here. Don't worry. I'm just doing the background. I as, know you are. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You're more reassuring the audience than me. I know what's going on. Around the time Pierre and Marie Curie discovered radium, mm. by the way, mentioning Pierre reminds me of how he came to an end. No spoilers, but... Listen to Chernobyl episode 20 and we talk about Pierre Curie. (laughs) (laughs) So Henri Becquerel, again, around the time that they were discovering radium, Henri Becquerel, uranium fan, noticed that he got a burn on his skin where he had been carrying around a vial of radium, which was Mm. that element discovered by Pierre and Marie Curie. And it all happened all over again. So the doctor that examined Becquerel's burns concluded it was likely from the radium, later confirmed by Marie Curie herself, 
Okay. And he decided, that doctor, to start using it in therapies for skin conditions. Okay. Medicine <laughs> never changes. Yeah. Modern medical innovations are just better guesses because we're more informed. All but right. still, it's like you try <laughs> something, and if it works, you reverse engineer it to see how it works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you take it apart, put it back together. And it's not to imply that medicine's clueless. Like, you do also have directed research to like, oh, we know that these receptors work this way, so we're going to make this drug. But even like a lot of medications for depression and anxiety, like we know what receptors they act on, but we don't really know exactly how they're doing anything. No. (laughs) Also, admittedly, that's a sweeping generalization. And if there's any like, like neuroscientists listening, yes, I understand that we understand a lot of how things work. (laughs) But by and large, a lot of these things are just like, oh, let's block this and see what happens. Oh, it worked? Cool. Let's keep using it. Keep it up. So eventually, radium ended up being used even more effectively than x-rays to treat many conditions. And it was even more effective in some ways because it's easier to focus on a targeted area than x-rays. Okay. Radium was even used at some point to treat tuberculosis with targeted blasts of radium to the lungs. Oh, okay. It's cool and scary. Also, just as today, and this isn't the disaster yet, but just like today and a lot of other things, the quasi-doctors and snake oil salesmen weren't far behind when it came to these medical innovations. They're always there. Before you knew it, people were selling jars that would infuse water with radium radiation, radium bath salts for people to treat themselves to some radiation baths (laughs) in the comfort of their own homes. Cool. There was even a radiation spa opened on the site where Marie Curie first gathered samples that she would identify as radium. (laughs) Just people glowing everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Maybe the most notable is a product known as Radithor from the 1930s. Oh, sounds awesome. It was radium water that boasted the curative properties of radiation and Uh also was a total sham. So people dosed themselves and unsurprisingly ended up developing cancer. So it really was irradiated. Like it wasn't just yeah. water with no. green food. <laughs> That's almost worse, right? It's right. not like, it's not water that they said was radioactive and wasn't. Yeah. It was actually radioactive. It was the real Which McCoy, was the problem. And yeah. it <laughs> killed people. Yeah. Slowly. Great. Most of these radiation therapies gradually went away, except for one very well-known application in the treatment of cancer. Mm. And there's three main forms that survive. Basically, targeted external radiation, which is a beam aimed at like a tumor. Okay. Radioactive implants on or near tumors. Oh, wow. And we actually talked about those a little bit. If you remember Gary's uh, psychological impact of Chernobyl, Tragedy Tuesday. Mm. It's episode 21 and a half. We talk a little bit about... Sometimes if you have prostate cancer, they'll put like a little radioactive implant next to it to kill the the cancer cells. Okay. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. And then also the, maybe the nastiest kind, which is an infusion of radioactive solutions, basically like chemotherapy. Right, right. Although, well, I think there's a difference there. Chemotherapy and radiation therapy, like radiation therapy can be in the form of a solution pumped through your veins. Uh Uh-huh. But then chemotherapy is like a chemical compound that's not necessarily radioactive. Okay. Different, but the same. Point is, still used. The reason that all this came up is... When I went into the Chernobyl episodes, and I think maybe you did too, I had the impression that the radiation exposed there was something that killed you really quickly. Yeah, that's always been my picture of it. Yeah, and and, and as we heard, the timeline for for people that were exposed at Chernobyl was generally days to months to years. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it it varied quite a bit. It was never like, and then you fall over kind of thing. Right. But it got me curious about how fast radiation could... And has killed someone. Oh. <laughs> the world record. I know this is a world record, but it's pretty quick. Okay. Spoiler. It's a, it's a, it's a podcast about disaster. Disastrously quick. 
So the Los Alamos National Laboratory should ring a bell. It was founded during the Second World War and was home to the Manhattan Project. Ah. And that was the project to build a nuclear bomb that was successful that we talked about in Chernobyl Part 1, Episode 20. Yeah. After the war, the Los Alamos National Laboratory continued research on nuclear weapons and developed the hydrogen bomb and lots of other exciting ways to exterminate humanity from the face of the planet. Mm -hmm. yeah. They also did a lot of basic science, including Project Sherwood, which looked at controlled nuclear fusion as a power source. Okay. They're just sciencing around. Basically. Cool. And even, even saying those, I think I've said this before, but even saying words like controlled nuclear fusion without having the safety net of norm <laughs> nuclear norm being here uh, just makes me feel like a total sham like <laughs> <laughs> whatever that is i don't know he's <laughs> probably listening to this being like those are my words exactly you don't get to use those words. <laughs> yeah. So as you can imagine, most of what went on at the Los Alamos National Laboratory involved radioactive compounds. Mm. A lot of these experiments produced leftover radioactive compounds that needed to be recovered. And they get recovered in these large metal... I'm sure there were other, other ways, but they a, one way of doing it was by using these large metal tanks filled with acid and other solvents. Kind of like a nightmare vortex of the worst chemicals you'd never want to be exposed to. Okay. <laughs> So I just say that because I was reading about it and it sounds like nasty chemicals, but the chemicals actually aren't part of the disaster. Oh. Still, these just the baths sound nasty. Great place to party. Yeah. Yeah. So on December 30th, 1958, one of these tanks was filled with nitric acid and a smattering of organic chemicals. Okay. And the goal was to recover some plutonium-239 following some experiments. I don't, I'm not actually clear on the type of experiments, but... Sounds great. They were probably... Feeding aliens. I think that's what they were doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. The plan was to dissolve the plutonium-239 at a concentration of less than 0.1 gram per liter sure. of this solution. Okay. Just to keep it low for yeah. reasons that I'll get into. Well, you want to keep it low. So for some reason that's unclear, the actual concentration of plutonium in the tank ended up being more like 20 grams per liter. Okay. I'm getting real self-conscious saying words like critical mass. Again, have <laughs> have a listen to Chernobyl Part 2, Episode 21. Nuclear Norm does a great job of explaining this. But basically, it's enough to say that 0.1 grams per liter was safe. Uh-huh. 20 grams per liter <laughs> brings us quite a bit closer to critical mass. Okay. <laughs> and as a reminder, critical mass is the smallest amount of fissile material needed to start a sustained nuclear chain reaction. Uh-huh. And fissile material, that's just like... Well, listen to, listen to part two of the Chernobyl series. Norm does such a better job exactly. explaining it. <laughs> Take it from the expert. And how they would recover this compound is the first step would be that the tank started spinning the solution inside to create a vortex and like mix everything. Okay. The plutonium and everything. Like the plutonium would be added in and then they'd stir the tank and it would all get like <laughs> homogenized and cleaned. Yeah. Overloaded with plutonium. Don't forget. Okay. I have not. Okay. The technician <laughs> responsible for this tank was named Cecil Kelly. He was okay. 38. 11 years experience, and most of it was spent at Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. So with the solution loaded, the plutonium-239 added, Cecil turned the tank on. And when the solution started spinning, it did so with nearly three kilograms of plutonium-239 lying in a layer at the very top. Because okay. the solution was sort of denser than the plutonium that was lying. It was kind of like a, maybe, maybe picture like a powder lying on the surface. Sure, sure. So when it started spinning, it made a vortex. And the, the solution that was denser moved out to the corners and created like a bowl. Right. And so all of that plutonium basically went from a layer at the top to being collected at the bottom of this bowl. Okay. So it's like a candy kind of. This the, the, yeah. Uh, a little bit. Yummy center. Exactly. <laughs> the ideal shape for a mass of radioactive material to go critical 
is a sphere. Okay. And it didn't quite get to sphere, like it didn't quite become a perfect sphere, but if you're picturing a bowl and everything collecting in the bottom of it, mm. you're getting pretty sphere-ish. Yeah, quite circular in a 3D sense. Exactly. So the plutonium-239 collected into a dense sphere-like shape within about a second of the tank <laughs> being switched on. Okay. And neutrons began bombarding atomic nuclei until there was a sustained nuclear reaction. Okay. Which lasted about 200 microseconds and oh. resulted in what's known as an excursion, <laughs> which is an uncontrolled release of radiation resulting from a criticality. Okay. <laughs> Practically, what this means is that there was a short, bright burst of blue known as Cherenkov radiation. Mm -hmm. And three seconds later, the nuclear material was dispersed throughout the bath and everything went back to normal. Back to normal. Within five seconds, he switched it on. Yeah. Created this bowl. You got a critical mass flash. Kazang. And then everything started spinning. Okay. Unfortunately for Cecil, <laughs> he was standing at the top of a ladder when the excursion event happened, uh -huh. and he was looking down into the tank through an observation window. Okay. So Cecil fell off the ladder, stumbled to his feet, and ran out of the building. <laughs> his co-workers ran after him, and they found him convulsing outside in the snow, yelling that he was burning up. Oh, my God. The co-workers assumed he must have been exposed to the acid bath because you couldn't possibly have an excursion event. Those are impossible. Those, that's just theoretical. Uh-huh. Maybe flash forward 30 years and you probably had a lot of those conversations about the Chernobyl nuclear mm. plant too. <laughs> because they thought he was exposed to acid, they threw him under a chemical shower and he was unconscious by the time they got him out of the shower with his skin turning a pinkish red. Okay. For two hours after the bright blue flash, Cecil was alternatively catatonic or vomiting. Ugh. But... Then he got better. As okay. Well, he was, he was talking coherently. Apparently, he was recovering from the events. But again, if you listen to the Chernobyl episodes, yeah. you know what that is. You know what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, am I glad that's over. Oh, Can't wait to go home for Christmas or mm. New Year's at this point. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about greys in the Chernobyl episode too. I don't know if you remember those. No, enlighten me. So they're a unit of measure of ionizing radiation dose. Okay. For reference, two greys can cause radiation sickness, but isn't necessarily lethal. All right. And usually it's not. Two to four grays is typically a lethal dose. Mm. And five grays is a guaranteed lethal dose, okay. five and above. Okay. On December 30th, 1958, <laughs> Cecil Kelly was hit with 36 grays of radiation oh, from the excursion Jesus event. Jesus Christ. <laughs> five is lethal. Five is lethal. So seven times the guaranteed lethal yeah. dose. Plus one for good measure. Within 24 hours, Cecil was in a coma mm -hmm. and they were doing bone marrow biopsies and they would just pull out watery marrow with no red blood cells. Oh, I don't know if you know this, but like your marrow is a major source of red blood cells. Okay. So no red blood cells. Uh, by this point, no white blood cells. So basically his blood is turning into water, okay. more or less. Yeah. And after several pointless blood transfusion, Cecil's skin turned gray he was sweating profusely, he became extremely agitated, and eventually his heart stopped beating. Cecil Kelly lived for just 35 hours after witnessing the bright flash of blue light through the window at the top of the tank at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. <laughs> oh my god. Day and a half. <laughs> wow. That's septicemic black death time scale. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Episode 13 and 14. That's black like death. the... Uh... <laughs> Radiation equivalent of the Mentos into the Diet Coke, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a real strong reaction. He was standing at the top of this tank, which isn't a big tank. Like I saw a picture of it. It's, you know, I, I don't know the exact dimensions, but uh -huh. a person standing next to it. It's like a picture, like if you've ever, you've ever been in a brewery. Yeah. Okay. Like one of those, one of those like 
tanks that they used to brew beer. Yeah, the big boys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. And so if you had like a window at the top of it and you were like standing over it, staring into the window, right. and he was like staring right at the mass of plutonium as it went <laughs> critical. It's like looking down the barrel of a gun uh -huh. as it goes off. Exactly. <laughs> so in the aftermath, some good came from Cecil Kelly's nightmarish end. Right. So his body was autopsied and they studied the effects of excursion events on internal organs to help understand the effect of nuclear explosions on humans. Mm. So that's, that's nice. The problem is the autopsy wasn't authorized by his widow mm. and she filed a suit in 1996 against the doctor that performed the autopsy. The reason that I bring this up is I recently started articling at a law firm so i'm like in my fledgling days of my legal career yeah. but during a deposition the doctor was asked who gave him permission to do the autopsy okay and the doctor answered god gave me permission oh i'm pretty confident that i would advise a client against invoking any kind of permission you think you might have gotten from a deity during a dip deposition yeah not a good look no just uh you know what don't say anything yeah 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 so that's better. Uh, move to strike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, Kelly's widow got $9.5 million from the settlement, but not an admission of wrongdoing. So nobody admitted to anything, but they just gave her $10 million. Yeah, just throw some money at it. That's what they do. If you were left unsatisfied with the timeline for radiation-based deaths in our Chernobyl episodes, <laughs> see a therapist first. Yeah. That's a problem. But also, think about the day and a half that Cecil Kelly was sentenced to following... The critical event at Los Alamos on December 30th, 1958. Yeah, it's like the express package. And that's my Tragedy Tuesday. And the nightmarish end of Cecil Kelly. That was a disaster. Indeed. At least you got to see some pretty blue lights. Yeah, I'm like weirdly fascinated by that. They did really, they did a really good job in their Chernobyl HBO miniseries mm -hmm. depicting that because I, I read, I had read about this Cherenkov radiation. I don't fully understand it, but it has to. I think it has to do with like ionizing the air. I don't know where the glow comes from, but it's this blue glow that you see in nuclear reactors yeah. and excursion events. But anyway, I'm always fascinated. Like I wish I could, it's like this morbid fascination. It would have been amazing to like stare at the melted down core of oh, yeah. Chernobyl. Oh yeah. But also you would, you would die. You would have a horrible, to be some kind death. of ghost or something to stare yeah. at then. It's like a very yeah. specific kind of time travel. We're working on it. We'll get there. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Science is on it. <laughs> yeah. You know, for now, I'll just watch a, that HBO series. It was again. great. I loved it. So for music, I actually have three bands today and it follows a discussion that we had last week, I think. Okay. Today I'm talking about Gary Newman, Foo, the Foo Fighters and Marilyn Manson. Oh, and I think you know that the song I'm talking about is down in the park. Yeah. We were talking about that recently because I, the first time I ever came across that song was the cover that the Foo Fighters did in 1996 right. for this CD that came out called Songs in the Key of X, which right. was like an X-Files. It was like an X-Files soundtrack for the TV show, but not actually. It was just like music inspired or music that inspired the show. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, the first time I ever heard that song was the Foo Fighters. Then, like only a couple of years ago, I heard... Gary Newman's version from 79, which is awesome, obviously. Yep. And um, I'm just, I'm gonna have to correct you there. Okay. It is Gary Newman. Yeah. But it was a band he was in called Tubeway Army. Damn. Sorry. <laughs> but when I looked it up, it just said Gary Newman on it. You know, I bet there's a version that he did by himself too. No, no, no. don't. You're, you're right. <laughs> I I thought I was right then I just checked on the internet so I, it's not that is an information I had okay up here enough. but uh, yeah yeah so you know okay 
Well, either way, <laughs> Gary Newman had a hand in the song Down in the Park Absolutely. that was released in 79. He did. <laughs> and it's an awesome song. It is. Uh, and then as I was doing research on cover versions, turns out in 95, Marilyn Manson did a cover of Down in the Park really? that was released on the Sweet Dream single. Okay. So I listened to that. Double cover. If I had to rank them because nobody asked, <laughs> I think I'd put the Foo Fighters you know. one first because that's my, like, that's the one that I've heard since I was you know 13 or whatever exactly you have a personal stake in that then gary newman get like i think if i heard the gary newman one first it would be my favorite version because it's it's right up my alley it's awesome yeah and then the marilyn manson one it's fine but it like the foo fighters one's got me covered for that so yeah you know it's a, it sounds like marilyn manson covering down in the park yeah i can you, i can i haven't heard it i can picture it you can picture it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of creepy. Conjure a Marilyn Manson song. Yeah. And now imagine that it's down in the park. Down in the park. <laughs> Something like that. Yep. That was, it's like I was listening to it again. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, awesome song. Check out all three versions. Uh, Foo yeah. Fighter is probably my favorite. Yeah. I heard it for the first time the other day. You sent me a, a link. Oh, to yeah. It. It's pretty great. We'll listen to it when we're done here today. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a tragedy Tuesday. Thanks for joining us. If you liked what you heard, the best thing you can do to help us out is to tell a friend to listen. Have an excursion event in their face, <laughs> but instead of radiation, that's gross. <laughs> Apologize for the blue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm afraid I just blew myself. <laughs> you know, you got to get a tape recorder and listen to yourself. Even if it means taking a chubby, I will suck it up. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's a bias. You blow hard. <laughs> you blow hard. <sighs> Maybe we should just change this podcast into quoting Arrested Development. I think so. I think it's one per app at this point. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, uh, yeah, just tell a friend to listen. That's the best way to help us out. Subscribe if you haven't already. That's also super helpful. Leaving a rating or a review wherever you listen is also great. Apple Podcasts is still probably the best place to do that. But really, anywhere you think would be helpful would be super appreciated. Yeah. If you want to keep up with what we're doing on social media at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, remember, if you tell the world to listen to our podcast publicly and tag us about it, then we'll enter you in that draw for some exclusive mystery box merch that we'll be teasing more and more. If you want to get everything in one place, www.thisdisasterpod.com and our patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod. Tons of bonus content, behind the scenes, live streams, tons of stuff. So check that out. Uh, and I think that's pretty much all I had to say, unless Lee got anything else to add. Uh, I had my own uh, radiation uh, uh, event earlier at dinner. I bit into right. a barbecue, a burger that I barbecued. And for some reason, yeah. none of the juice had escaped. Okay. So when I bit into it, it, Splurted me with oh, no. like molten lava hot juice and fat. Oof. Oh no. <laughs> I've never had that happen before. It was insane. That sounds a little bit more delicious than Cecil Kelly's. A little bit more, final but 35 hours. Yeah. I went running probably the way he did. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Into the sink <laughs> to like the, yeah, rinse. Like, get this shirt off me. <laughs> oh, God. That's my own little micro disaster. Uh, we don't have problems. No, yeah. Everything's fine. I think that's a Lee quote from episode one of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that was established yeah. from the beginning. We, you know, we don't have problems. We're, yeah, we're, <laughs> oh, my delicious burger sprayed juice, <laughs> delicious juice on me. <laughs> we just talked about a guy, we just talked about a guy who melted from the inside exactly. because of radiation. And we laughed about it. Oh, oh boy. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you in our next major disaster. Bye. Bye.